Well, you know, <clears throat> when you think about highly valuable things, <clears throat> generally speaking, I think we consider the original versions of those things to be far more valuable than copies of those things. So, uh, for instance, when it comes to fine art, the original painting by the painter himself is far more valuable, it is worth far more than copies of that painting or later versions of that painting. When it comes to fine watches, uh, an original Rolex, which is not what I'm wearing right now, uh, is always worth more than a copy of a Rolex, someone else's version of a Rolex, right? When it comes to fine cars, an original vintage sports car is worth more than a new a copy or a kit version of that original classic, and there's good reason for that. Originals are worth far more than copies because the originals are authentic, right? They can be authenticated back to their source, their creator. Of course, the word uh, original comes from the root word origin, which refers to the point or place where something begins, and the word authentic means of undisputed origin. So anytime we can authenticate an item as an original, we tend to value it far more because we know it came from the original creator of that item. And so when, uh, when we possess something of great value and it's the original, we tend to treat it with special care. We, we protect it, we guard it, we keep it secure because it's the real deal. It's, it's authentic. And you know, the truth is the same thing can be said of the gospel. There are many different versions of the gospel of Jesus Christ just in our culture alone, and yet the only one of real value is the original because that is the only one which can be authenticated. It is the only one that can be traced back directly to the creator, the author. So, so why then would anyone want to follow a copy, right? Why would anyone want to follow an inauthentic version of the gospel? Well, it's for the very same reason that people buy inauthentic copies of original artwork and fake Rolexes and imitation sports cars because they're not willing to pay what it costs to get the real thing. You see, you can follow a false gospel or some cheap version of the gospel that won't cost you anything. It's easy. It's cheap. It's also worthless. But it looks good, right? Just like a knockoff Rolex, it looks good, but it isn't worth much. Right? You can follow somebody's version of the gospel for little to no cost personally, right? But following an authentic gospel the one that Jesus actually taught us to follow, that will cost you everything. And yet there are people who want a version of the gospel. They want Jesus, but without the cost. So they come up with their own version of his teachings, and invariably there are always plenty of people who are more than happy to follow that new version of the gospel because it looks good and sounds good and it's cheap. Right? It doesn't cost us anything. But listen, a gospel that costs you nothing is worth just that, nothing. On the flip side, a gospel that costs you everything is worth everything. And so as we, we embark on a new sermon series today, 
where we'll be working our way through the letters of John, we find John, the, the same man who wrote the gospel according to John, which we've already been through, the, the same man who wrote the Revelation, uh, which we'll be going through soon. We find this same John, the apostle, in these three letters addressing this same issue of how to live out the one and only authentic gospel of Jesus Christ among all of the competing versions of that gospel in contemporary culture. And to be <clears throat> more specific, there was a false teaching that was gaining a significant, a significant following in the early church at the time John wrote these letters. The propagator of that message was a man named Serenthus, whose teachings were the forerunner to what later in the second century became known as Gnosticism. And so uh, the followers of this new teaching ultimately organized a group of itinerant preachers who circulated around to the various churches teaching their false gospel with the goal of winning people over to their new message, which again uh, grew into what we know today as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is really a religious uh, mysticism that interprets Christianity and the gospel of Christ in a way that was completely uh, contrary to what John taught and, of course, to what Jesus taught. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But John, the apostle John, became such an opponent a fierce opponent of Serenthus and his false teaching, which again was leading lots of people away from the church that Irenaeus, the early second century church father, wrote that John would not even bathe at the same public bathhouse at Ephesus as Serenthus, who John referred to as that enemy of the truth. In fact, the first time John went there to confront Serenthus at the bathhouse, the level of heresy, the depth of division was so heavy what Serenthus was saying that John literally ran through the bathhouse at Ephesus yelling for everyone to get out of the building because he was afraid God was going to call down the walls upon them. Amazing. Seems crazy today. But as John well knew, these were eternal matters. Okay, Just keep in mind as we go. This was the same John who walked with, lived with, ate with, served with, suffered with, and learned directly from Jesus himself. This was John, the beloved disciple, who along with Peter and James was a part of Jesus' inner circle. He leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper, and he was the one to stay with him through the crucifixion. And now, here he is watching these heretics, these false teachers, taking just enough of the gospel, the ultimate message of truth, and mixing it in with their own teaching to make it look good and sound good without having to pay the cost of truly following Christ. Worse than that, it was gaining popularity. And as we'll see, especially next week, it was leading a lot of people away from the church. The church, which happened to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, according to Ephesians 2.20. And so as we go, we'll take time to compare this Gnostic teaching against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the point here is, Nothing could be more relevant to what's happening in the church today than these letters of John to the first century church because the Gnostics believed they were in fellowship with God. They believed they were okay. They believed they were in good standing with God and yet they denied the divinity of Jesus. They denied he was the Christ, the Son of God, which meant they could deny the validity of all of Jesus' commands. 
which is exactly what they did, and they were teaching others to do the very same thing. But why? Why deny the commands of Jesus? Because his commands are hard. They're costly, right? You know this, at times they make us uncomfortable, unpopular, unacceptable, even offensive to the culture sometimes around us. And yet at the same time, some of the teachings of Jesus make everyone happy, right? We love the part where God loves everybody and desires that all men be saved. I love those parts too. And so we keep the parts that we like and discard or change the parts that we don't. And what we end up with is a gospel that looks good and sounds good but costs us nothing while accepting nearly everything without challenging anyone. That's a great way, by the way, to make bigger churches without making disciples. John knew better. He knew better because unlike the false teachers, the slick preachers who were selling a cheap gospel and leading people away from the true church, John knew firsthand the cost of following Jesus Christ. He was living it, and he knew it wasn't an easy gospel. He knew it wasn't cheap. It was authentic and worth far more than anything else. And so because of his great love for the church, he sat down and wrote some letters to set the record straight about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for us is that these letters will have the same intended effect on the church today as they did on the church then because there are many competing voices in our culture today and it's easier to find them than ever before uh, because of technology, right? You can Google uh, Jesus, a teaching from Jesus and instantaneously have access to every possible variation and twisting of what he actually taught at your fingertips in blogs and posts and articles and videos and podcasts and books. It's easier than ever before for someone, anyone, who has their own take on the gospel to create, promote, and disseminate that teaching than ever before. Please understand, by the way, I'm not against uh, technology or the ability for the average person today to be able to mass communicate in their pajamas from their living room couch as long as they have a laptop and an internet connection. I actually think that's a gift from God sometimes. But it's one that we Christians should consistently be using for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom in every opportunity. And yet along with that easy access to technology comes a horde of voices saying anything and everything else. So here's the point. If those other voices become your primary source, okay? If your primary source for doctrine, your theology, the basis of what you believe about God and life and other people in this world, if, if your primary source for your beliefs is one or more of those other voices, some popular author or popular speaker or some great podcast or any other voice other than the voice of God himself by way of his word, then you're opening yourself up to what the Apostle Paul called every wind of doctrine. Human cunning and deceitfulness, craftiness, he said. You see, it's nothing new. Right? John wrote these letters uh, during uh, the final 33 years or so of the first century, not too long after Jesus ascended to heaven. And yet, before, before the apostles, who were actually there, 
with Jesus. Before those guys even died, people were coming up with their own versions of what Jesus taught and then creating their own followings of people from within the church, people who would then leave the true church based on these new teachings. And that's been going on ever since. So John wrote some letters to help the church understand the difference between a popular following and an authentic faith. Why? So that they could recognize false teachers who, by the way, always say they have some kind of new revelation or a, a deeper understanding of God supposedly given to them by the Spirit or revealed to them through Scripture so that no one can argue with them. Is one of the reasons, by the way, that we have the written Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit is alive and well, and He's speaking today, yes, absolutely, but never never in contradiction with the written word of God. That's why we continue to go back there week after week to his written word, which we're going to do today as usual for our source of teaching and truth as we work through these letters, beginning with 1 John chapter 1. So let's turn there together. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to start out today by simply reading the first six words. It says, That which was from the beginning... I just want to stop there and point some things out about this opening before we continue by John. Because when you read his writings, including his gospel account, including the Revelation, it becomes clear that it is of the utmost importance to John that any time he addresses the churches that he first authenticates his message back to the original source of truth. Okay, In the gospel according to John, he opens up with, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, John 1, 1 and 2. And then again, here in the beginning of John 1, 1, we just read that which was from the beginning. And then in the opening of Revelation, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Revelation 1, 1 and 2. So in each of John's writings, he makes it a point right from the start to authenticate his source as Jesus Christ, who has been there from the beginning, which is to say from the pre-dawn of time. He is the uncreated, eternally existent source of truth. That's where John is getting his information from directly. And just to drive the point home, he adds to that statement. So let's start over now, and we'll read the first two verses. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is actually an astounding set of credentials for someone who's about to testify to what they believe to be the truth. So to make the case that he's a credible witness, John explains that concerning the Christ, the one who was from the beginning, that same Christ, and then came in the flesh, John says of himself and the other apostles together, that concerning this same Jesus, we personally, we have heard him. 
can almost, he's almost goading Serenthus and his followers. Have you, Serenthus, have you heard him? We have seen him. Have you seen him? We've looked upon him, he says. We've touched him as he was made manifest, means revealed to us. The word manifest in verse 2 is the ancient Greek word phanero. It means to make visible or known that which was previously hidden or unknown. In other words, John says, in case you were wondering where I'm getting my information from, I was there with Jesus who was revealed to us, by the way, as the Christ. This is a first-hand eyewitness account from someone with intimate knowledge of the one in question, which was then and should be today the most compelling evidence of all. The fact that we have multiple eyewitness accounts from multiple people with multiple perspectives written at different points throughout history, all saying the same things about the same person which again is underscored by John's use of the descriptor we and us over and over again throughout the passage. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, touched with our hands concerning the word of life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, proclaim it to you, which was uh, eternal life with the Father and made manifest, he says, to us. In a court of law, both then and now, the only thing more compelling than a first-hand eyewitness account from someone with intimate knowledge and familiarity of the person or event in question, the only thing more compelling than that is multiple corroborating first-hand eyewitness accounts of that person or event. You see, John's going to great links here to carefully and very thoroughly establish himself as a credible witness who can authenticate his source for what he's about to share in the letter. So let's keep reading verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So after establishing that his source of truth is the one who was from the beginning... He tells us here in verse 3 who that source is. It's Jesus Christ. John is very careful to point out that, that this Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, which, of course, we're so used to hearing and saying today that it probably doesn't affect us the same way. But this happened to be one of the main sources of contention with the church concerning Serenthus and his followers at the time. And so when John describes Jesus as the Son of God, he's actually doing far more than just using it as a title, as we would today. John, in fact, is sending a message to all those in the church on both sides of the argument that Jesus alone is our source of divinity. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is of God. And the reason that was so inflammatory and yet so important to clarify was because the Gnostics and their predecessors not only did not believe that Jesus was divine, but they believed they were. Right, we'll come back to that. But first, Serenthus taught that the Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then departed from Jesus before his crucifixion so that the Christ had no lasting union with Jesus and never actually suffered, which is a key point 
Because it's tremendously convenient if you say you identify with the Christ, but don't want to have to identify with any kind of suffering. Right? I understand it at, at first glance, this may seem like some kind of ancient cult or irrelevant way of thinking, but it's not so far removed from the church today, actually. There are entire movements within the Christian church in our culture today which are based on doctrines that say Christians should never have to suffer in this life. That we're all guaranteed, guaranteed by God to have health, wealth, and prosperity. Which sounds great until it doesn't work. Besides the fact Jesus promised us that we would at times have to suffer in this life, and yet we have slick preachers today literally selling a false gospel and inauthentic faith to believers who would rather listen to these other voices as their source because it doesn't require us to suffer or give up anything in our lives. It's an easy gospel. It's cheap. Look, all you have to do to access the truth about authentic faith is to simply meditate on God's word. In fact, you don't even have to meditate on God's word to know that any gospel which denies all sacrifice or suffering for the believer is a complete lie. All you have to do is casually read what Jesus said and it becomes very clear that following him will cost you everything. All that you have and all that you are. Yes, there are untold blessings that follow that pursuit of Christ without question and it is in that very pursuit of the voice of God in our lives that we find infinitely better things than any prosperity this world has to offer but it's not without a very real cost. And yet that is exactly where true freedom is found. Okay, the Spirit of God speaks to us through His Word. The Apostle Paul tells us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, 2 Corinthians 3.17. And yet I see Christians seeking freedom through just about every kind of religious gimmick and false teaching and worldly prosperity that they can get their hands on. They're seeking freedom by way of everything but the Word of God. Yet in John 17, as Jesus was praying for us, he prayed these words, sanctify them in the truth... Your word is truth. And I'll tell you what else Jesus said about the truth. In John 8, 31 and 32, he said, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? The truth will set you free. Have you heard the old song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places? I think a lot of Christians are looking for freedom in all the wrong places. There's no shortage of false teachers today who will gladly capitalize on our lack of time in and understanding of his word. False teachers who will literally sell us all kinds of spiritual remedies for what ails us, what keeps us in bondage, and all the while, God's word is right there in front of us, able to set us free. But we'd rather listen to other voices, the popular authors dynamic speakers who act like they all have something original to say when it's nothing more than a cheap knockoff imitation of the real thing. No thank you. No thank you. I want to go to the one true source of authentic faith and get what I need from him. 
Right? The Gnostics believed there was a divine light that already existed in every human soul, which is, again is quite convenient if you, if you want to make up your own version of truth. Because if we all have a divine light within us apart from Jesus Christ, then we're all just as qualified to determine what truth is as he is. Which means truth becomes subjective. It's whatever we want it to be. Which again is also quite prevalent in our culture today and has even crept in to some elements of the church. It comes when we allow the other voices to become our primary source of truth. Voices who tell us we can become our own source of truth. And in my opinion, I think that philosophy has become a spiritual plague on our society. Just look at the, the shockingly rapid increase in our culture of people today who are self-identifying as just about everything except the one thing they actually are. And then they demand that the rest of society recognize and affirm that they are what they say they are because truth is whatever they say it is. And where we end up is no one has the right to tell anyone else what is actually true anymore because we're now our own source of truth. We all carry a divine light within us apart from Jesus Christ. That's what the traveling preachers were preaching in John's day. But he was quick to point out that Jesus alone is divine. Let's continue, verses five and six. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now again, John is careful to point out that it is God who is light. This is a direct response to these mystics, okay? He is the source of divinity and in him is no darkness at all. And when John directly addresses another teaching of this false gospel in these verses, when he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, okay? The Gnostics believed that they had a new revelation from God. It was given to them by the Spirit of God, they would say, through their own prophets, which is exactly why in chapter 4, verse 1 of this letter, which we'll get to in a few weeks, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Remember, these false teachers did not believe Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ. So John says if these prophets don't believe in Jesus as the Christ, then you cannot believe a word they say. Don't listen to their voices. He's warning them. Let the voice of God alone be your source because he alone is light. That's where the truth resides. The darkness, John says, is where you find deception and lies. He's teaching the church that Jesus alone is the source of truth. That seems like it would be really obvious for Christians today, and yet I'm not so sure we're fully convinced that he alone is the source of truth. Which is not to say, by the way, that we can't hear truth from other places. Certainly we can. But all truth, even when delivered by others, comes ultimately from the one and only source of truth. 
Jesus Christ and his word. And I think most Christians, at least intellectually, would acknowledge that. After all, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. But look, if we're fully convinced of that, then why do we sometimes react the way we do when someone tells us, uh, for instance, that we are worthless? Right? If we're fully convinced that Jesus is the source of all truth, then as hurtful as it may be to hear that from someone else, we still wouldn't believe them because Jesus says otherwise clearly. Psalm 139 says, You were fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2, Paul says, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much are you worth? Jesus says you're worth dying for. And yet when someone tells us we're worthless, sometimes we believe them. Why is that? Sometimes when people tell us we'll never amount to much, we believe them. Why do we believe them? Sometimes when the enemy of our souls whispers in our ears that we're destined to fail, why do we listen? I'll tell you why. It's because we're not fully convinced that Jesus alone is our source of truth. We're willing to entertain these other voices who say otherwise. But just take a minute and think about how your life would look if you were absolutely convinced that every single word that God said about you was true. John 14, 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Are you kidding me? Do you believe that? That doesn't sound like failure to me. Romans 8.37, Paul says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's a heck of a thing for a guy like Paul to say. Now tell me again the part about not amounting to much. I don't think so. Ephesians 6.16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you, you, can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Are we worthless? Helpless? Are we weak? Are we powerless? not according to the source of all truth. So why don't we believe what he says about us? It's because we're listening to the other voices as a source of what we believe. But listen, that's not authentic faith. 
In fact, that is the very opposite of authentic faith. That is putting our faith in what is inauthentic. We're listening to cheap imitations of the original authentic source of truth and then we wonder why we're so discouraged. Just think what our lives would look like if we really believed that Jesus was the only source of truth. What would the church look like if we all believed that Jesus was the only source of truth? Would we be feeble? Would we be afraid? Would we be helpless? Timid? Would we be spiteful? Judgmental? Arrogant? easy to lead astray by false teachings? I don't think so. No, no, we would be strong, fearless, effective, gracious, forgiving, compassionate, and powerful people. Which, by the way, is exactly what the world is supposed to see when they see us. This is what John was trying to say to the church because they were being so easily seduced by these other teachings. But anything that you believe today about yourself or God or other people or this life, anything that you believe that is contrary to his word is a lie. He has designed and created you to be the most powerful force of nature in all of his creation. Confident, not arrogant. Powerful, not overbearing. Gracious, not weak. Compassionate, not gullible. Always loving, not self-serving. You see, these are all signs of authentic faith as we follow the voice of Christ because he alone is the source of truth. Let's finish the chapter then. Verse 7 to the end. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Again, the Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus' death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins because they didn't believe there was any sin in them, right? Because of this supposed divine light, which again they taught was in every one of us already, apart from Jesus Christ, which is why John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's a direct response to the false teaching that was leading believers into an inauthentic faith. But John takes it even a step further. He says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. He said that because these followers of Serenthus were leaving the fellowship. They were leaving the church because they were no longer walking in the light, the truth of Jesus Christ. So they were out of fellowship with the body, the church. So John's making the point that if two believers are actually walking in the light, in other words, if if two believers are in right relationship with Christ, then they will be in right relationship with one another, in fellowship with one another. Not perfect, but in fellowship, which is another indicator of the evidence that we are following an authentic faith. Because, look, there's no version of following Jesus Christ where you're out of fellowship with the body of Jesus Christ. And let me be clear, that is to say the local church 
William C. Haas put it this way, the false teachers whose opinions he's quoting and refuting in these verses boasted of their fellowship and communion with God, but they neglected the fellowship with men. John wants to remind them that they cannot have fellowship with God unless they have fellowship with other Christians. I'm very sad to say that I've had quite a few friends over the years who were active with me in the local church, people who were passionate about God, who began following other voices, reading books and articles and watching videos of people who were teaching some new idea or some new revelation or some deeper understanding supposedly on an old biblical theme. And in every single case, those friends of mine who continued down that path eventually left the local church and to this day do not fellowship with the local body of believers, yet they claim communion with God. Okay? So you just consider this for what it is. A reasonable warning from a pastor who loves you very much. If you're listening to other spiritual voices and at the same time you're increasingly feeling a draw to be away from, apart from your local fellowship of believers, then that voice you're listening to is not the voice of truth because there's no version of authentic faith that leads you away from the local church. This is a strong word from John and a direct challenge to these false teachers, but he takes it even a step further. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is perhaps the ultimate truth claim by John to these preachers who were teaching an inauthentic faith. Okay, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, when someone uh, shed blood as a sacrifice, the effect of that sacrifice was applied to the one offering the sacrifice which meant our purification from sin was still to some extent dependent upon our own effort or our own merit or our own enlightenment to commit a sacrificial act. But when Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice and his blood was shed, the effect, the benefit of that sacrifice was applied to all of us by absolutely no effort, no merit, no enlightenment of our own. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ took the sins of his people and was punished for those sins as if he had been himself a sinner. And so sin is taken away from us. But in no sense, degree, shape, or form is sin removed by attainments, emotions, feelings, or experiences. In other words, we have no claim whatsoever to salvation by our own, uh, our own efforts or our own good deeds, our own sacrifices, our own enlightenment or anything else for that matter. It is by and only by the shed blood of Jesus that we are cleansed from our sin. John's leaving no room here for individual subjective interpretation. He was making certain that those in the church understood that Jesus Christ alone is our source of salvation, which again was a direct rebuttal of the false teaching by Serenthus and his followers who believed they were sinless because of their own enlightenment. Not only, of course, is that heresy, but look, that type of thinking breeds spiritual arrogance, which has no place in the church. 
listen, no matter how broken, uh, no matter how dysfunctional, how spiritually uneducated, how mixed up or messed up a person is when they walk in the church, the very last thing they should ever experience or even sense in the slightest is a seasoned Christian looking down their nose back at them as if we've somehow attained to something great by our own enlightenment. No, John is very clear. Not one of us can claim one shred of responsibility for the saving of our souls, for that is the result of only one man's blood being shed, and it isn't yours, and it isn't mine, so that no one may boast, but in Jesus Christ alone, who is our sole source of salvation. You know what that does, among other things? It keeps us humble knowing that truth, that Jesus Christ is our sole source of salvation. And it also keeps us tender toward those who have yet to experience that salvation because we know that it has absolutely nothing to do with our own effort or enlightenment. Right? Spiritual humility is yet another indicator of an authentic faith. And on the contrary, I am always leery of the faith of people I meet I'm just being honest with you, okay? I am leery of the faith of people I meet who act as if they're spiritually superior to everyone else around them. Beware of those kinds of people because you will find that is a common trait among cult leaders, false teachers, and all those who prey on God's people. And as much as I hate to say it, and I hate to say it, those same folks who I've known over the years who've listened to other spiritual voices and eventually left the church, one of the early signs that I witnessed among each of them was spiritual arrogance. They think they know better than everybody else. It's a very sad thing to witness because what they see as true enlightenment and uncommon enlightenment among the average church member is actually nothing more than spiritual arrogance that leads to an inauthentic faith. By the way, in verse 7, when John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The phrase is walk in the light and cleanses us from sin. Both of those phrases use present tense verbs. That means John was saying that this walking in the light and this cleansing from sin are ongoing processes throughout the rest of our lives here on earth. It's another really good reason for us to remain humble, just as Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, so that this walk with him, being sanctified by him, it's a lifelong process that none of us, not one of us, has reason to boast except in Jesus Christ. None of us has the market cornered on spiritual maturity or holiness or wisdom or spiritual superiority. And yet people walk in and it is all over them. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed with myself either, by the way. Because we're all meant to be learning and growing and maturing constantly throughout this life always in complete humility toward God and other people. All right, there, there are a lot of competing voices in our culture today. 
fact, it seems like an endless supply of people who say they have the answers that we need to live the life we've always wanted. And listen, guys, it, obviously it's okay to listen to podcasts and read blogs and books and watch videos. I do a lot of all that. It's okay. It can even be quite edifying if you're listening to true followers of Christ, those who have an authentic faith. But listen, shouldn't your primary source of information and inspiration and understanding of God and his people and this world and your life, shouldn't your primary source be the one who created it all? Whatever time I spend each week with all those other voices, I spend far more time, exponentially more time in his word. Because he alone is the source. He's the original voice. He's the one we should value above all others. Which means if you want a faith that is authentic, if you want to live a life of authenticity, one full of truth and confidence and power and love and compassion and grace and purpose, then maybe we should turn off the TV and close the laptop, put down the tablet, take out the earphones, silence all the other voices for a little while and listen to the original voice the one source above all others is Jesus Christ, the author of authentic faith. Let's pray.